Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is a writer and activist, Nimka Ali. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hi, thank you for having me. No, thanks for coming on. Listen, before uh, we get into the interview itself, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, you're obviously very well known for your work on FGM, and we'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, but just tell us who are you, how are you, where you are, what has brought you to this chair where you're sitting now, <laughs> other than the Uber you just got yeah. out of. Other than the Uber that I just got out of, and um, you sending me a message on Twitter. So yeah, I'm an anti-FGM activist, mm. and ultimately, um, I think the trajectory of my career changed when I realised that my silence was very much complicit to the misunderstanding of a form of violence that I was subjected to when I was seven. Mm. So uh, I went to university, I'm actually qualified, I did do law, but I'm, I also spend most of my time talking about the female anatomy, so <laughs> I call myself... I call this my, is why we had you on yeah, yeah, I call myself um, the chief fanny defender, so that's what I do. I basically just sit around and politically and socially um, work towards ending a specific form of violence. Mm. And we'll get into that, as, as I said later on in the interview. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on is obviously to talk about that, because it's an important issue. And yeah. Francis, you, you know, you're a former teacher. You had some experiences with that, right? So yeah, I used to work in Newham. Where, okay. Yeah, so I've seen... I never saw it happen or whatever, of course not, but I saw girls disappear yeah. and then come back a few months later and the change in it. And obviously we never knew yeah. because we'll get into that about how nobody's ever been prosecuted or charged with it. No, there has been a like successful prosecution, but um, the CPS who are the bane of every woman's life have just actually decided to update their guidance to kind of make it easier for people to get away with, 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 um, and with FGM. But there was a successful prosecution this year. Oh wow! Well, yeah. That's it. Because the last time I checked, when we were when I went to training, a lot a couple of years ago, and they were saying that nobody had ever. Yeah, so they've never had a success. So they they had quite quite a few prosecutions this and last year, and then um, in April there was there, there was a woman, ironically from Walthamstow, so around that kind of area, that was sentenced um, for performing FGM on her um, three year old child. You know what? We've got into it now. You've got to get into it. No, I'm sorry. No, no, no. That, no it's, not, it's, it's, it's my like, fault. It's yeah, my fault. Because when you were saying, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, like, you know, at the end, like since the age of seven, FGM has been the, f the fundamental thing that's actually shaped my reality and also shaped yeah. my political sure. um, views. So in terms of even like, you know, the way that I talk and, and what I do, mm. a lot of that has been fundamentally around the way that I was misunderstood as somebody that came from a community that was affected by FGM. But then also I was more than that. So yeah, it's a, it's a, well, let's a, dive into it's it. a core part Let's dive into it. No, no battle plan survives first contact <laughs> with the enemy. <laughs> Not that you're the enemy, of course. But look, it's, it's a very contentious issue. Uh, it's a very difficult issue for a lot of people. It's something that I also think there's a lot of misconceptions about. Yeah. So just for, just to be, start us off by explaining to people who may not know anything about it, yeah. what is FGM? Uh, female genital mutilation. A lot of people think, oh, it's a bit like circumcision. Yeah, everybody does it. It's it's a different culture. Some people think it's it's to do with Islam. Yeah. Which like just debunk a few of those things for us. So basically, the fundamental and the core thing is that FGM is injury or damage or removal of any of the female anatomy for non-medical reasoning. And I think that is the key thing. It's the fact that it's for non-medical mm. reasons. And a lot of people want to kind of put culture, want to put like faith and all these things in there, but 
is a form of violence. And one of the key things that I was um, that that I was saying about why the CPS is new definition of saying that if it's done if it's done in a hospital and of women of a certain age, then the consent can really apply to that. Is that it's a form of GBH. It's like when we talk about mutilation, it's the body being changed from its natural settings for no reason at all. And we would not accept that if you said to me right now, do you know what I consent you to chop off my hands? I would get arrested because that's GBH. That's a corrosion of society. That if we are starting to give people consent to cause massive damage, but when it comes to the female anatomy and the women's bodies, we are constantly talking about as though that there is no um, kind of influence on doing these things. I'm telling you, no girl will ever walk, wake up and say, do you know what? I'm really not happy with my anatomy. I want it to be, um, I want it to be cut. And I remember watching um, an episode of um, the, the Playgirls. The play, and anyway, it was, it was, what was the guy? The guy that um, Hugh Hefner. Hugh, Hugh, yeah, Hugh Hefner's. Hugh Hefner had a show on um, E Channel, the E Channel. I was quite young. I was watching this um, show, and the Playboy bunnies or the girlfriends that he had. Again, that was a form of abuse. The fact that polygamy is like fucking ridiculous, but. Um, they were talking about labiaplasty, which is like cosmetic surgery on the female anatomy. And then I was, and then my mum was like, but why would they do that to themselves? And I said, but why would you do FGM to yourself, mum? Or why would you do FGM to yeah. girls like me? And it's this whole idea of the fact that, but that's my culture, or I've, I've, I've basically chosen to do this. The patriarchy is powerful. And what we do is I, as the more we empower women, the more it comes back in other places. So FGM is literally like, you know, any damage to the female anatomy. It doesn't matter whether you're three years old or whether you're like 25. There's no medical reasons for it, and all of it legitimizes other forms of abuse to women. So, so what you're saying is incredibly enlightening. Then the, it begs the question: Why do it? Why do so? Some cultures have FGM. So, so the same. So it's because it's every single woman in my family until about the 2005 had been cut, had been uh, had undergone FGM. So there was this assumption that that's what, what it was like to be a Somali woman. And culture is a weird thing which we're all gripped in. Like, you know, if we're the way that I'm dressed today or the way that you're dressed or what you think or what you believe in are all informed by the way that we're raised and the people that we're around. And if you don't have anybody else telling you that you shouldn't be doing this, then you just keep they, and, and then you're going to keep doing it. And you're going to make it as a fundamental thing to who makes you who you are and to take something like FGM away that's basically been what my grandmother my great grandmother my mother everybody had and for me to say but it's really stupid like why are we doing this that is judging people that is like you know shaking people's real core values and for me I never knew FGM was abuse I just thought I knew it was painful and I just knew it was really stupid mm. and asking questions as to but why are you doing it or to my non-Somali um, community and friends saying to my teachers like why is this happening to me and people having no answers around it made me really re understand that actually this was something that nobody understood and they were doing it because they were scared of not doing it and then my teachers who were all English were scared of intervening because they didn't know what was actually going on. So a lot of it is all about control and the, the patriarchy will enforce things on women in order to keep them down. So yeah, it just, like, why does anything happen? Like any of the things that we want to kind of evolve and change is because some evil people are benefiting from it. I'm guessing the question uh, people might ask, you know, circumcision, the male circumcision exists. It's obviously a different thing and it's much less invasive and whatever but uh you know some of the arguments uh, for jewish people like my some of my ancestors and uh arabic people living in the desert 
the argument was that it's about hygiene if you get dirt and sand stuck under your foreskin. Yeah, 4,000 years ago. Like, yeah, no, right. sorry, 1,400 like, yeah. no, years ago. But this is like two. So I said to one of my friends once, the, why are you circumcising your child? And she's like, it's, it's more hygienic. I said, but there's soap and water. And she's like, for <laughs> sex. I'm like, he's eight days old. Yeah. Like, why are we thinking about who he's having sex with? Yeah. And I always think, and I'm going to get a lot of, this is, I think this is the thing that can unite, like, you know, the Middle East, both Jewish and Muslim, is around male circumcision. And I'm going to get a lot of shit for this. But ultimately, if you took out religion and said, like, why are you cutting healthy tissue of a young baby boy who you just would immunize in a few days not to get like you know tetanus and all these other kind of things and then you say well a few thousand years ago um this man was hallucinating he was a prophet though let me tell you this was a man that god was speaking to he god was speaking to him god said to him murder your first child mm. and then he said actually i'm not going to do that uh, well actually i'm going to do it and then he was so obedient that um god changed the son into a lamb mm. and to be so grateful he pulled his penis out and cut some skin off it it's that's a great why, story. Yeah. That's why 4,000 years later, I'm doing this to my child in, um, in Crouch End. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I guess the, you mentioned the patriarchy several times, and yeah. I was just thinking, like, it happens to boys as well. I'm, that probably wasn't the patriarchy. It was what people 4,000 years ago in the but, desert believed, right? But no, but, but the thing about, so the difference, so the fundamental difference for, between um, male circumcision and FGM, mm. so one, like, I don't support any forced surgery on children, but ultimately what happens is that FGM, where FGM is prominent and where FGM is practiced, there is like, you know, other forms of gender-based violence where men have their foreskin removed, they get the keys to the kingdom, they're not being forced to be married, they're not being stopped from going to certain employment, they're not being segregated, so they're not being forced to wear the burqa, or there's several other things that happen as a result of where FGM is evident. So, so the life the life consequences physically as well. Physic that physicality is another thing as well. That like even the most the, the the least invasive form of FGM, which is the unhooding or a clitoridectomy, moving the external parts of the clitoris on a male organ would mean like removing almost like the total penis. So the physicality, the physical impacts are different. The social and um, emotional impacts that are happening are different as well. So I think that's the fundamental thing. It's like how the society is structured. And to be fair, there is a little bit of male ego involved in male circumcision that fathers always want their sons to look like them. That's one of the main reasons why a lot of, like, you know, a lot of, and also Jewish and Muslim mothers want, like, you know, other women to be very proud of what their baby's penis looks like. I just think it's really weird. <laughs> when you really listen it's to it. It's pretty fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah. When you really break it down, it's like, why are we talking about, like, this is quite pedophilic. It's like, <laughs> we're, st we're all standing here staring at a baby's penis. It's a bit weird. Like, take religion out of it. It's very weird. And FGM, from what I got told, and please correct me if this yeah. is wrong, a large part of it is control over women and their pleasure of having sex. Well, it's it's more it's more about control over women and, and, and like you know, and ownership. So pleasure. So I wrote a book recently called "Things We're Told Not to Talk About, But We're Going to Anyway." And at the, at the heart of that was the conversation around the female orgasm. Nobody ever talks about female pleasure. So female pleasure is always seen as a bonus, not as a right in in terms of sexual relationships. Not in my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Empowered women. Empowered women have orgasms. That's yeah. why. That's why the world wants to shut us down. In my house, it gets talked about all the time. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So and if you choose too empowered, mate. Yeah. 
anyway. See, and I think that's the, like you know that is fundamentally the thing is the fact that it's not like you know um, it's not about control, but it's the whole thing of like well, obviously the the reason why you can't have an orgasm is because of the fact that you've been mutilated. It's not it's 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 it's, it's because of the fact that you're being oppressed and raped on a day to day basis when a lot of those women don't even have any choice over the men that they marry. Mm. So technically, if you're being forced to sleep with somebody every night it's rape because you never chose to marry him and to be in that relationship so there is an element of controlling about the, the ownership of sexual pleasure as opposed to control so own, like sexual pleasure only sits within the male um, like you know a member of the relationship so the idea of removing the clitoris is that there's no need for you to be sexually um, pleased you're only there to have children mm. right uh, I was going to ask you. You mentioned culture and religion, yeah. and there was a there was a couple of things that I asked you at the top. I just want to clarify. So, for anyone who doesn't know, first of all, where is FGM normally practiced? So you're from Somaliland yourself. Yeah. Uh, is so, it mainly Africa? Is it beyond that? Where are the regions where this is part of the local culture? In terms, in, in terms of the largest number of countries on a continent, Africa is the largest. Which mm. has 28 countries um, that have more than a 40 percent uptake of FGM, and there's like like Indonesia, um, like, you know, um, um, and parts of India. And I would actually classify um, Harley Street procedures called cosmetic surgery on the female anatomy as FGM. So it's a global issue in terms of how we define it, whether it's a razor or whether it's happening in a hut or in a hospital. It's all exactly the same. But ultimately, in places where, like e um, Ethiopia, for example, mm -hmm. where it has, like, you know, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and non-people um, um, of the book religions, FGM is practiced there. So so, by by even by Jews by and by Christians, really. All of them. Really? So it's an so, so it's a cultural issue. So, so, so therefore, it's an Ethiopian thing. So Ethiopia right. has an FGM um, um, issue. So yeah, it, and also it, it predates all the kind of all the Abraham, Abrahamic religions. Mm -hmm. So it's four thousand years old. So it's like and it was well before Muhammad, well before right. um, Moses, and well before Christ as well. Because that's one of the big, I think, misunderstandings. Certainly in this country, when yeah. people talk about it, I think a lot of people think that it's a Muslim tradition. Yeah, no, no, it's not, it's not because, because of the fact that we've called it circumcision and then what, what happened was, right. the so the, the terminology was female circumcision, which, which is wrong because it's FGM, and then what happened was that the circumcision is only within the Jewish community or within the uh, Muslim community and, and because there was no evidence within the Jewish community of FGM, then people assumed because it was called circumcision, it must come from a, um, a Muslim background. So I'm just gonna yeah, call like bad asthma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, so yeah, it must have just come from um a Muslim um, background, but it doesn't like you know I've known people from all faiths and no faiths that have actually practiced FGM. Mm. It's a bit like rape and domestic violence. It, it like you know it crosses the um the um the theories of the books. And what are the long term health implications for if for these women who? Have had this procedure. I think like the main thing is death. It's like the, it's not like the like the like you know FGM can kill, and we always say survivors of FGM. So there are millions of women and girls who haven't survived, and then I think the complications go go um, go into dependence on the physicality of the FGM that you had. So I had a really invasive form of FGM, and when I was eleven, my kidneys almost failed and I almost died. Um, so there so so type three, which is infibulation, which is more common in Egypt, um, Somaliland, Sudan, Somalia, in all those places is where they basically stitch the female anatomy together and that means that if these girls are being cut as young as seven like I was you're going into puberty with no ability to menstruate like you know healthily urinate freely and also if you do have sex like getting penetrated through 
like some raw t- like you know some like you know um scar tissue it's going to be extremely painful and then pregnancy so there, there are massive complications mm. that kind of come into it but i think the social and the psychological impacts of fgm are fundamental where you're subjecting something so horrific and brutal and needless to a child and that will have um lifelong complications and i think we have had this um view of not of never assuming what the um emotional consequences could be all the emotional the, like you know the feelings that african women have we never talk about so we know africa um many countries in africa have been at war for um for decades but we never talk about the realities of what like you know what, what it means to be a woman in africa living with such brutality mm. we just assume that it's a physical act that we're going to um ultimately just fix so for me i think the emotional psychological issues are more fundamental than the physicality ones which we focus on mm. and Do you think we're doing enough in this country to deal with it in these particular communities or are you know the the powers that be sensitive about dealing because accusing of being intolerant of being racist of all the rest of it Actually sorry before you answer that question which is a great question can you tell us how prominent it is in the UK So the, so within the UK there are 137,000 women that are living with the consequence of FGM Wow and in 2000 and in the um just about I think it was about five, um, um, five six years ago when we did some um data one in 10 births in Southwark was born to a woman who had FGM mm. I know so it's a it's a massive issue it's a huge issue that yeah. is, is a, is, is, it's a, it's a, it's a huge issue but then again it also to- shows you that who are having babies within this within the country at the moment it's like the large families are within uh, families with FGM and all these things are practiced because of poverty and and, and 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 the fact that women don't have any control over their bodies so obviously the, the, the these women are constantly giving birth which is another kind of massive issue that we are that we should be talking about. Mm. So to come back to Francis question yeah. now part of which was why is it that do you think we're doing enough number one and also why is it that uh, uh we may be reluctant to talk about it. No, I think we are so the um the since the coalition government came in in 2010 um there has a lot has changed and um we 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 left on Tuesday I was with four secretary state of state so um so pretty patel the home office um Gavin Williamson at education, Matt Hancock at um health and then another Rob I forget his name mm. um from communities and all four secretaries of state were committed to talking about FGM so there's are there, there is incredible things that are happening and I do think that I you know I do know that a girl so my niece is 8 years old now she is 100% safer from FGM than I could have ever been mm. when I was her age and there are um like you know things that are being put and put put in place in order to make sure that her rights are respected but ultimately those people that want to continue FGM will will keep, will will keep pushing and I think the the decision that I was talking about the CPS today it's problematic because at this moment in time there are people in Kenya who are trying to um revoke the law against FGM saying well fine ban FGM for children but let women have choices around this issue and there is like this idea of choice doesn't actually like you know exist and i think we have to understand the commonality of what does legislation and what does protecting civil rights and protecting human rights of women really mean and that means that certain things are just unacceptable we don't have like you know 
you can't say, well, if I um, consent to being beaten by, by my husband, then that's fine. Mm. We understand that that's coercion and that there's abuse and there's grooming within those issues. We don't accept that. Um, if you've been in a relationship where rape and domestic violence has happened, that even though you've stayed, there's some kind of consent given. So we have to understand that there is no consent when it comes to a form of violence against women and girls. And that, for me, I find that really problematic when people try to intellectualize saying, well, well, it's not like this girl in Africa that's been held down. I said, actually, at least you can see the horrors of that girl fighting back. But for you to willingly walk into a clinic and be subjected to the same act of violence that I was and consume that as empowering, I think that's more problematic for me. And that is the kind of conversations that we need to be having, that it doesn't matter. And also, the FGM legislation is ridiculous here. It says, uh, girls should include women. And FGM should not be allowed for cultural reasoning. And then the culture is defined as the 28 African countries. So if I go to Harley Street and say um, that I'm Caribbean and I want type 1 FGM, that's fine. If I say I'm Somali and I want type 1 FGM, I don't have any um, concept of choice. So then I'm stopped from having that. Right. That is how the legislation sits at the moment, that, um, that black women from African heritage can't make choices, but other women can. It's a very weird thing, uh, particularly with the trans conversations happening now, isn't it? Because a trans person can say, well, I identify as different gender and therefore I want surgery. But that's a medical necessity. And I, yeah. and I think you have to have like medical. So like the whole the, the whole idea of uh, cancer. So there, there is, it's just a bit like abortion. Abortion is not actually a right here in the, in the UK. You have a, a legitimate defense to asking for an abortion because two doctors um, define it to be medically necessary for your physical or emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people forget that, saying that the fact that that the abortion act is a, is a defense to the act of abortion as opposed to a right to have an abortion. Right. Um, and that's what, the, the, there is that caveat that's built into the FGM legislation where if you need this, so if, for example, I had over, um, so I had like, you know, vulva cancer or all these things, there will be a need to mutilate my anatomy to save my life. If I had, um, like, you know, if I was going through gender reassignment, there would be a medical and a psychological need to mutilate my anatomy. It doesn't take away from the fact that what's happening to you is an act of FGM, but there's a legitimate legal reason for that. Right. And mm-hmm. that's what people just don't understand. Yeah, yeah. But to go in and say, oh, I just don't like, I just don't like my flaps. <laughs> well, I've, n- I've never done that. <laughs> that's what I mean. That's what it's basically, that's what the CPL is fucking saying. It's the fact that you can just walk in and say, I just don't yeah. like my flaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, no, absolutely. And when these girls and young girls, I mean, how does it, I got told that a lot of the time they, you know, they got taken back to places like Somalia or, or mm. these countries and then the operations happened there and then they got brought back. Is it happening in, are there people doing this sort of a back street, like an abortion? Um, so there are, there, were, there was evidence when I was growing up in the 80s and the early 90s that it was happening here in the UK, but now parents are taking their girls away because at least that way when you're kind of trying to groom and brainwash them into the whole idea you're kind of taking them back to a culture which they've longed for so then they therefore they assume this is part of that so a lot of the a lot of the FGM is now extraterritorial and that's why the 2003 legislation made it illegal for girls to be taken out of the UK to be cut but but then there are women that are turning up at clinics or FGM um um no in in but um, giving birth who haven't left the country who've been reinfibrillated again stitching women back up because what happens is a lot of these women some of them might come to join husbands here 
the FGM has happened before they became a British resident, but therefore the FGM is something still the NHS has to deal with. Um, that woman is defibrillated, so basically her, her anatomy is opened up in order to give birth. And then she comes back again with similar, um, like, you know, um, issues that, that, um, um, that she had before, meaning that that FGM has happened somewhere here in the UK. But ultimately, there are people, um, the last, the last case which was unsuccessful was a 16 year old girl whose, whose anatomy had shown up as being, um, injured and being mutilated, but, the court just didn't believe that her father, who she said was the person who initiated the FGM and can, like, you know, was sanctioned there, was the person that did that. But that girl still was mutilated here in the UK. Hmm. So, so I think there's this weird still thing. Happens, about, yeah, it happens, yeah. It definitely still happens, yeah. All right, well, let's look at some <coughs> of the, the broader issues uh, around this and, and many other things that you've talked and written about. Uh, one of the things I think, Francis, you, you brought up earlier was this idea that there's a kind of cultural relativism that happens with things. So, oh, it's just their culture. You know, this yeah. is how they do things. You know, just let them do their thing. We, who are we to tell people in Somalia how to live their life? Right? That's an argument that comes from a certain section, particularly, I think, of the left. Yeah. What do you make of that? Well, it's it, it's it's bullshit. It's just basically like, you know, throwing you to the wolf. So, it's like, well, Nimco, that's fine. You're like, love you. You should be really British, but... Let's just like you know. Let's not just protect your um, human rights. Sorry, and I think that's one of the things where um, in in April we had FGM added to the Children's Act, where it was before. So like, there's like if if a if a social worker, a teacher, or other people are concerned that a child could be in danger or neglect, it was basically the, the, the like you know the ability to get a protection order was there, but FGM wasn't added. So it was you had to prove. The level of negligence or harm that was going to be caused to the child, um, but if these family, so like there are no, there there are no other indicators of abuse within a lot of these families. So so that's why people say a loving family. Um, so these kids are well fed. They like you know they're clean. They're not turning up at school like you know late. They're basically in what looks like um, decent families, which my family would look like from the outside out. Um, as opposed to just being an FGM practicing community. So there's no triggers for social services or other people to get, um, to get a, um, a, 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 a protection order or to limit the, the, the parental rights of these parents. And FGM needed to be added to that because they, because, because what, what, what these social workers and people were saying, yes, I know she's cleanly dressed, she's being fed, but there's a risk of FGM. And that just wasn't in the, in the Children's Act. So we ended up so there was an incredible um, member of the House of Lords who, like, you know, flagged this up. It came through. It was sponsored by um, two conservative um, MPs. And then just on the second reading, that great fucker, um, Christopher Chopes, objected to it, saying, well, we were virtue signaling. And, I, and, and it's really it's really interesting. The left who are so woke and these and, and some of the like, you know, really um old school, like, you know, I wanna be like, you know, having black people bring me food and stuff like that, what like, you know, on the right are very similar. <laughs> um, they wanna bring the empire back to a certain ex very similar in the sense of like let's keep the culture, we shouldn't intervene. Um he objected and thankfully, um the um the um the 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 government gave a time and overruled and like you know overruled him. But what was really interesting was the conversation that I was having with people, and there's this key thing where everybody, everybody says, "Let me play the devil's advocate." I'm like, the devil doesn't need a fucking advocate. Like, have you not read everything that's in the 
Quran and the Torah and the Bible and everything else. Like, you know, like the devil doesn't need anybody to advocate on his side. But they went, let me play the devil advocate. Like, you know, why should we intervene? And I said, it's really interesting that if there was evidence of your daughter, so it's this um, white guy, if your daughter, if you were subjecting your, your, your daughter to FGM or the idea that they even was talked about, like, you know, people will come down to you like, like, like a ton of bricks. But if my daughter is at the same risk because she's brown, we should just basically respect me before we respect her. Mm. And he's like, oh, I didn't really think of that. And I said, and if my daughter or a, daughter, a girl that looked like me was adopted by white parents, then she's okay to be protected, but not be protected when she's behind um, communities which are non-white. It's this whole thing that we're saying that the human rights of certain people um, have more legitimacy than others. And it's not like we're not saying that these kids shouldn't be vaccinated. We're saying that these kids should be protected from, like, you know, torture, which is actually defined by the UN. So, yeah, a lot of it, for me, it's actually quite, um, it's offensive and it's hurtful. And it actually shows a lot of um, racism in the, in, in the sense that they're clearly just saying that my rights don't matter and me being subjected to a horrific form of abuse, it's fine because that's what savages do. They technically, yeah, this is it, like, yeah, that's what savages do. Like, 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 we don't evolve. And Nimco, do you think as well, it's a lot of it, it is racism, I agree, and a lot of it is cowardice as well. Because do you see it from the modern feminist movement where they want to, you know, tear down the patriarchy? But when it comes to an issue like FGM, which is a massive issue, and like you said, yeah. affects over 100,000 women in this country, do they want to get involved or they just sort of back away from it? Well, it depends. Like, you know, like, you know, radical feminism has always been quite friendly and has kind of supported. I think one of the kind of the key interests was when I first started doing the work was the conversations around um, black feminism, black working class feminism here in the UK. And I think and that, and that was very much embedded within the labor movement. And I think that's very problematic in the sense that I think you see your race before you see your gender. And for me, I've always been a woman before I was black or before I was anything. Because a lot of the things that have happened to me haven't been because of my race, it's been because of my gender. And I, I'm very much aware of because of the fact that I'm African and direct, like, first generation African born that for me I did not identify as black I did not go through a lot of the prejudice that a lot of people did and I came from a country where like you know that my privilege and my um my, my, my family meant that I like you know you were from a wealthy background yeah yeah so yeah. I did so a privileged background which mm. when we lost everything and became refugees we still had aspirations so I didn't mm. probably struggle with identity as much as like um, a lot of people that whose families came came here from from, from the Caribbean or Jew heritage um, women who um, grew up in white working class areas who kind of was basically saw their brothers and their fathers and all these kind of things struggle so it was really difficult when I started talking about FGM as though it was like oh you're basically bringing stigma and shining the light on an already marginalized community. Like, what are you doing? We shouldn't, like, let the white guy, like, you know, define us because, everybody, like, the police were seen as a white institution. The government was seen as a white institution. And me working with them both very closely and actually really saying that, guys, you need to protect me, was seen as something, well, something as kind of a sellout. And I just thought, like, when you're in a country, I've seen countries fall apart. Um, and fundamentally, what, what people want to do after you get dictatorships and all these things is to really bring back justice and really ensure the rule of law. 
and I quite like the police. I, could, I was like, you know. <laughs> Shocking got, revelation. Got no issue with the police officers. And, but that's just like, you know, it doesn't mean that, that like, you know, I'm not going to complain as a taxpayer to, about the police system, but mm. I don't actually walk around every day thinking that all police officers are racist and a mm. chip on my shoulder. Mm. Um, yeah, and I don't think, like, you know, that all white men are bad. So I just think that was, that was just a weird thing for me to be saying as, um, to them as a black woman. And I was just saying it as a woman and as somebody who, Understood the need, you know, the the need of like you know the the criminal justice system to understand, like you know, diversity and people like me. Mm. It's interesting that you bring up this idea that being outspoken in this way and tackling that issue and working with the white police, uh, inverted commas for our listeners, white police and white government or whatever, made you kind of a bit like a traitor, I suppose. Yeah. Is that I don't know if that's the right word. And uh, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is we read an article that you wrote, I think it was in Telegraph, yeah. around the time that Boris Johnson, then newly minted prime minister, by the time this goes out, who knows what his position is going <laughs> to be. The man that delivers Brexit. Well, we'll, we'll find out, right? <laughs> We're Tomorrow. recording this just on the, the, the day before the big Saturday or whatever it's called. Super Saturday. Super, super Saturday. Saturday. Oh, yeah. that's less like proper American, like yeah. they have these super Mondays or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he appointed a cabinet yeah. that had a, a strong representation from different ethnic minority groups. The son of a former Pakistani bus driver, people from different communities from all, all around the world, black, James Cleverly, you know, brown, etc. Yeah. And within an hour... A lot of these people on the left, like what's a Kerry Ann Mendoza, whatever her name from the Canary, came okay, out. Oh, and said, she's blocked me. She she, she did a like you know a preemptive strike. I don't even know who she is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how she was. Well, she is the editor of the Canary, and she came out and said that these are not people of color. Yeah, they are tone coats of color. And this idea that a person whose skin is different has to th to white has to think exactly the same way as every other person whose skin is not white isn't that the most racist idea that you could have yeah there was a there was a um a lecturer um at, i think she was at cambridge or somewhere and i was like so while she wants to intellectually masturbate over issues like fgm and all these things that activists actually get shit done but yeah it is it is the, it is that whole point of the fact that um Privilege is a massive thing, and I think I come and and the irony is that I come from the certain kinds of privileges that a lot of these people do. But I try to use that privilege in order to change the world for other people. And I know, like, so Priti Patel is um, a Ugandan, um, so she is an East African Indian, the most successful diaspora outside of the Jewish diaspora globally um, in the UK. So mm. she's the most so the most successful diaspora, and the fact that she's the Home Secretary says a test to a lot of the people that came here as refugees, like my parents say, actually, we're not going to give up, we're going to suck it up, and we're going to make sure that our children um, succeed. The idea when you, when your parents come, don't necessarily come from something, that they haven't lost anything, and I, I, I don't know, I don't want to knock them for being like, you know, um, not, 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 not having a lot of aspirations and then getting pissed off when people like me actually deliver and do things. But it is offensive. It's the whole point of the fact that I've got, um, young, um, I've, I've got two, um, like, you know, Somali black young boys who are my cousins. They, they go to one of the best schools in, like, one of the best grammar schools in London in Queen, um, Queen Elizabeth, um, they're in, like, you know, Barnet. And the irony is about 90% of that school is either African or Sri Lankan. And there's a massive issue why that is, because those people have all come from people who had to leave and be forced out 
by people who write the canary or read the canary and those <laughs> ideas that they have. Mm. So the thing is, I've seen the concept of socialism. I've seen the concepts of communism, and, I've, and I know they don't do any favors for people like me. So well, they don't do any favors for anybody. Trust <laughs> yeah. me, I'm from Russia originally. My yeah. mother's Venezuelan, so yeah. But, <laughs> so, but they don't. They don't definitely, but they specifically don't do anything for women, and they don't do anything like specifically for women. So yeah, it's just like it is. I don't know. I'm not. Like these people are just like ridiculous. I, I'm not sure if I'm not. I'm not. I'm not offended by them, and I'm not hurt by them anymore because I think I've got enough um, clout now just to kind of to laugh it off. But I think it does hurt a lot of other young people who want to be able to identify in a certain political um, with a certain political party or have certain views. And I think I was privileged enough to be able to do that. I grew up under the New Labour um, kind of party, and and I am under the generation. I am from the generation that things can only get better. And for me, things can only get better under the Conservative Party right now. Do I believe in every single policy the Conservative Party has? No. Do I feel safe under the Conservative Party than I do with Labour with Jeremy Corbyn? Yes. So, uh, like, like, you know, it's freedom of speech and free, um, freedom of choice. And if you believe in democracy, then everybody should be able to have their democracy. But I think the left want you to stay poor and they want you to stay black. And the idea, the fact that you might be a black person actually emancipates yourself and does something, they find really problematic. And I think that is, that is racism, that they would rather my young cousins were all going to a shit state school in an area that was probably labor held and then, then pointing to the government at the time saying, look what you're doing to young black boys. And actually, to be fair, everywhere that's failing in this country is to do with labor. It's nothing to do with the conservative party, ideally. And the places that are quite successful here in, um, in parts of London where it's labor held, a lot of the people that are there have turned the local schools into uh, like, you know, selection schools. Like my auntie can't move to Crouch End to a good state school because of like the housing prices in London. So why shouldn't she send her children to a, a grammar school means the fact that they can do as well as some of the people in the Labour Party's front bench at the moment. I think that's the, I think that's the problem. So yeah, I just, I don't really know how to answer that other than saying it's quite ridiculous and it's, it is racist, it is offensive and people like the Canary don't actually have, don't actually really want like, you know, anything to really change for like the, the poorest country, uh, the poorest people in this country. And the thing that always shocked me, and we had a, a former guest of ours called Zuby, um, who's a rapper and an entrepreneur and um, an incredibly intelligent man, and he was talking about what you were talking yeah. about. But the thing that he was talking about as well, and that I never noticed, is that they use racist language against you in order to attack you, which and then say that they're not racist. Yeah, but that's what I was saying about Jacob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jacob is like, but yeah, I'm saying like, so for example, Jacob Rees-Mogg would not be allowed to say the sort of things that I get, like somebody from the left is able to say to me. So mm. I, um, Lee Jasper called me publicly on, on, on Twitter, a fucked up Negro. What fucked up Negro for aligning myself with the Tory party, aligning myself with certain um, politicians and people who I personally know and I personally worked with. And then he tweeted after that saying like, you know, um, blackface, white soul. He's a mixed race guy. Like, I'm like, come on, mate. Like, you know, I'm actually, and this idea of blackness, I just, I don't get the idea of blackness. I'm like, I'm African. I was born in the continent of Africa. I was raised by great African leaders. Like, like fuck you, I'm black. Like I don't need to. I don't need to. Like you know, um, search for my blackness. It's something that's that I've inherited. Something that I know, and because of that privilege. And I, and, I, and again, this is the thing why I don't really come at them as much because I know the privilege it is to know from the land you're sourced in and to know the people and to know your lineage and to know your history, and. 
obviously like you know slavery and a lot and a lot of the like you know the, the past history of this country and um, this um this country and this world is like you know links to that but the idea of the, of of the fact that you are manipulating your political identity through actually textbooks that weren't even written by people like you so he will he'll quote like malcolm x and i was like but that's an african-american political leader in a context when it's about america and racism and the conversations around in america but I, like you know when, when it comes to uk that's completely different when it comes to africa it's completely different so i think what, what we've done is we've taken a very political conversation from america which actually is fundamental there to talk about race and diversity and what it is to be american um, than it is here in the UK. And this idea of the fact that you have to be like, stay black, stay woke. I'm like, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, <laughs> that's my, that's why I might get that on a t-shirt, like stay black, stay woke. And I'm like, I don't understand what that means. Like, you know, the fact that, like, you know, I, like Aruelo is a incredible, the, one of the first queens of, um, of the world. And she was ruling in like, you know, in the place of my birth. It's like, so I don't need to go to the British Museum to learn about my history. Would like to claim some of my British history back. Um, some of my history <laughs> back from the British Museum. So I think you and every other every other country in the world. But that's yeah. what I mean. I get mis I get misplaced in the sense that I don't agree with shit like that. I don't agree mm. with the British Museum assuming that it's the hub of culture and commute, like you know, and world history. Um, I don't agree with all those things. I don't like you know. I want us to be able to protect, um, like you know, um, Timbuktu and actually ensure that Mali as a country stays together because, like you know, history is there. It's four thousand years old. I think one of the interesting things that ISIS did which might be controversial, is as they started blowing up um, like these inc incredible like, you know, historical sites, mm. is the fact that they showed that the Enlightenment era did not start in the 17th century. See, I mm. fight things like that. When I'm, when I'm talking to my white, very intellectual friends, I have, di I have real dialogue and real conversations about saying, actually, the Enlightenment did not start in the 17th century. That Africa, um, the Middle East, India, were like, you know, enlightened and doing these things. Just because you got, um, just because you stopped using a horse and cart and started getting some electricity, that did not make you the kings of the world. But they wrote history. So that's, those are, are those things I'm very much aware of when I have those conversations. But yeah, I just, I, I don't have time to be like, you know, changing my name to some, like, you know, Egyptian, like, you know, God and pretending that, like, you know, getting some tattoos. Honestly, it's really ridiculous. Like, you know, <laughs> the Guardian Soulmate is also the worst place for that shit as well. Guardian Soulmate. Guardian Soulmate. Soulmate. Guardian Soulmate is the most racist place on the planet. Really? Yeah. Brilliant. How so? <laughs> I met, I've met a 45-year-old white man from um, um, NW5 with tattoos of Africa. And I thought, I said to him, do you actually think that's okay? And he's like, yeah, I really feel at home in Africa. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to get a tattoo of the Lake District because I love the Lake District. So, yeah, there is a lot of, <laughs> I don't mind people appreciating Africa, but. I feel just, at home in Africa. Do you reckon that guy's been to Africa? Um, yeah, he loves African music. And, he, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then he has this kind of like real fetishization. I always say yeah. to people, I always say to a lot of these men, I'm as exotic as a banana. I don't grow in this country, but you can buy me in Tesco's. <laughs> I, don't come to me and try to get yourself to be like a little bit more like, you know, like ethnic size. Like, you know, my, my ethnicity is something that I'm very comfortable with, mm. but it's not something like I don't walk around with head wraps. Like when I walk, like if I put on a head wrap, it's because I'm having a bad hair day and people think I'm making a political statement. Mm. I, I really am not making a political statement. I'm like, you know, if I put on some massive hoop earrings, I'm not making a woke political statement. I just couldn't find anything else to wear today. Mm. So there's like, so it's, it's been really interesting being me, someone who's very comfortable in my identity, but, all, but also, like, you know, even me opening my mouth always becomes a political thing. 
And it's interesting that you say that because we, we tend to think of uh, a lot of black people as being, you know, towards Labour, leaning towards left. But if you look at a lot of people who are first generation, second generation immigrants, number one, they're very aspirational. Mm. They move to another country in order to better themselves. They're very family orientated. They tend to be incredibly religious as yeah. well. And socially conservative. And socially conservative. I mean, those are all qualities of being on the right, aren't I they? Well, not the right. See, I don't like this left and right kind of bullshit. But just like, just not being Labour, not just yeah. being, not being red. Yeah. And I think that's why that's one of the things that a lot of people um, don't get. Why Boris won two terms in London? He won two terms in London because London is very African, and the African diaspora identify with him a lot. He does quite well. Really? Yeah. <laughs> The, the African diaspora in London identifies with Boris Johnson. If you, like, parents, if you, like, you know, so not the young, woke kids, so you won't ask about, like, this, if you, any, anybody under the age of 25, probably not, but beyond that, definitely. And I think that is one of the things is that the largest population of black people in the UK at the moment is of African direct descent. And that's a massive coup for the Conservative Party if they want to go, go into that. So they've already got, this is why the difference between the Indian diaspora and the Pakistani diaspora, the Indian diaspora is always very much voted within the Conservative Party because of that whole point of aspiration. A lot of the Pakistani community that have come over here, and, like you know, were not were, were were people to work in the mills and certain places. So they've always stayed in labour areas and kind of done those other kind of conversations. A lot of them in Scotland have now gone towards the SNP, ironically. But ultimately, the African diaspora is very conservative and they are very aspirational. And they've all come under, especially when it comes with Jeremy Corbyn, they've all fled countries where the ideas of socialism that he's um, selling at the moment have actually crushed their continent. So not that I work for the Conservative Party or not, like, you know, but I think, like, you know, they would do really well. And every single black um, MP within the Conservative Party is African. Nobody ever sees that. Like, every black Mm -hmm. MP within the Conservative Party is African. That's interesting, isn't it? That's very interesting. James Cleverly? And Sierra Leonean. Interesting. Ah. Uh, see, I never ever thought about where people come from. But no, but that's, not, but, that's, but, that's, but that's what I mean. And I think that's what I mean about like cultural identity and mm. conversations. Mm. And the whole point is just because you become poor and you become a refugee doesn't... It, so my life was a little bit like coming to America, but the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my family didn't come here looking for like you know, a bride. We were, but we did still... Was, like my mother would still turn up as though she was like... Entitled to the same bullshit as she did when her family ran a country. Nobody gives a shit. I spent, and I spent most of my, um, like, you know, childhood from the age of like nine to about 15 translating for several people within the community because there was no built in mechanisms for things like, you know, translation stuff within, within the NHS. So I, I, I saw that cultural kind of thing of like, you know, these Somalis, like, you know, walking in, um, Two places expecting things, and these white people going, "What are you talking about?" Like, <laughs> get a, and I once had to explain to somebody. There's a term in Somali called "hak," means I have a right to. And I said, in the UK, you have an entitlement. Everything you have for a right to is given to you because it's a democracy. Fill out a fucking form for everything else and see if you've got like if you're entitled to it. Mm. So this idea of I've got a right to something doesn't exist because you have an entitlement to anything that you haven't already got. So someone with this kind of aspirational mindset, which you clearly have, that comes from uh, a, a community and a family that has the aspirational mindset that you talk about. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about the new woke left and this idea that everybody's a victim of life? I mean, you you by all standards could definitely say you've been a victim of yeah, life. Yeah, I would say to, I would say to people, don't try to out token me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love those tokens. I like right. you know, so the, but, but you, I mean, you like you say you have gem survivor, you refugee, refugee. Muslim, yeah. woman, yeah. black. 
I, you know. Yeah, you're. I mean, you're <laughs> fucking winning the Prussian Olympics, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, yeah. that's you know, called a full God, house. God, yeah. God, <laughs> God, 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 which are real, right? But the indoctrination of people with this victimhood mentality, I don't imagine you're a fan of that. No, I don't. And also, I don't, I'm not a victim of, like, you know, um, cancelling people or not being able to communicate with people. So there's, mm. like, you know, always having a conversation with somebody on the other side. And it's always easy for me to cross over. Like, if I met somebody that was, um, like, a fascist or a neo-Nazi or whatever, um, I, it would be easier for me to cross over than it would be easier for them to cross over to and, and have a conversation with me. Because my whole point is that I'm comfortable in my identity and I want to have a conversation with you. Doesn't mean we have to get along at the end of the day. And I remember there was one of my um, one of my um, this kid I went to uni with wanted to stand as a counselor, and he sent me an email like you know a, like you know a few months ago, and he said, oh, do you know what I want to stand as a counselor? But a lot of people making issues about things that I wrote because they said that I was um, because I was racist. And I said, but Daniel, you are racist. And he's like, yeah, but you're my friend. I'm like, yeah, but it's like, mate, just because you got a black Somali friend does not make you not a racist. <laughs> we have these conversations all the time. I'm not, and I said. Technically, everybody is a racist, but it depends on what you do with that bias and that prejudice. So um, it's, it's it's how that it informs you. And I said, would I write about the fact that you are like you know suitable for a certain position? Like you know, you, you could probably do this, and you and you have biases um, that I don't think that, that that you will use as like you know prejudice against people within those communities. Yes, I would, but I would not stand here and say that you're not a racist. And and it takes a lot of people. <laughs> so you're basically trying to get a racist elected. That's what... <laughs> no, no, no. I said no. I said I wouldn't. But but I'm just but kidding. The, yeah, but the, yeah. but the whole point is, would I say like you know that like you know what is your um, what is the bar for you not to be a race like you know if did you ever use the n-word did you ever black uh, black up whatever it is it's like all those things yeah they are racist and stupid things to do but does that mean that you're not necessarily a person that could do a job and a person that like you know has redeemed themselves mm. probably mm. does and, and, and so there's so, so that we, we we make racist decisions on a day-to-day -day basis like my honestly like you know the whole things like who, who you date who you're attracted to what you eat where you live all those things are things that ultimately are based on your biases around certain like, you know um, faiths religions or class or whatever it is but does that mean that you're a horrible person I, I don't think so because I don't know you mm -hmm. so that's so I'm I'm of that people that I came like you know I saw the results of a a civil war that was all about tribalism and I try not to like you know say somebody can be a hundred percent of one thing do I what's that guy from the EDL would I want to be friends with him not really probably but it's just more because he's probably a dickhead <laughs> as opposed to like whatever he bangs on about about race and stuff he's just like he's, he's just he's just a very insecure man so I think we do live in a world where complexity is not respected and I grew up in a world where complexity was respected and where you like you know, had conversations with 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 people rather than seeking perfection. Because I think if you're trying to be perfect, if you're trying to have these conversations, then you're probably flawed and you're probably hiding something. Mm. And you you talked about tribalism, and it's such a good point. Do you think yeah. we become more tribal as a society now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what I so I stood for the Women's Equality Party in 2017, um, and everyone was like, "I'm going to be Labour." You're like you know, this, and I was like, "But this is not about tribes; it's about politics. What do you what are you voting for in terms of policies and things like that?" And for me, I think that's what really 
really freaks me out, and that's what's like you know corrosive is 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 the tribalism, which ironically comes more from like when I voted for the Labour Party, when I voted for the Labour Party, which I actually did in every single general election of my life, um, like you know nobody like from the, like no conservative or no Lib Dem or Green Party member or whatever said to me, "Oh, you're a fucking wanker!" Like fuck you, you Labour voting dickhead. Hmm. I say, like, you know, I voted for the Conservative Party in the mayoral elections. Oh, you fucking Tory. And I was just thinking, like, what, like, like, why are you not entitled um, to, a, to an opinion to say certain things? Say, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to, like, you know, argue against you. I'm going to win the seats. But this idea of the fact that there's only one answer to the whole world, it's actually quite problematic. And I think, so my brother's standing for the Conservative Party in Cardiff North. It's a boy called another African if he wins. Mm. Somali. So yeah, so but but the whole thing is like I think politics is a personal thing and it does change. And if you don't if your politics hasn't evolved since you were sixteen, then there's something <laughs> wrong with you. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting you, you talk about the, the this I mean these super tolerant people, it's amazing how quickly they become incredibly intolerant yeah. once they find out that you don't agree with them on every single tiny little thing. Yeah, that you're like, heaven forbid the fact that I think the Tories are okay and I believe in the existence of the state of Israel. Mm. I'm, I'm cancelled for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but they can't cancel me. I've got five tokens to pull out. <laughs> so yeah, it is. It's actually, it's quite, it's, I think, and also it's, um, it's very much anti-intellectual. I think that is the problem is the fact that we've now just got shouting heads from both sides and none of it is informed and none of it is like, I have opinions like on different things. Like, you know, I believe in taxation. I believe in the NHS. I believe in, like, you know, if you want to do private education, that's fine. There, there, there are things that I believe in, which my, I, I, when people say to me, oh, you're so right wing. And I was like, okay, what, on the, on the spectrum of the things that I believe in, like what is actually right wing about, about that? Apart from the fact that I do actually believe that if you go to accident emergency more than twice in 18 months, with an injury that was caused because you were drunk, you should do some community service. <laughs> <laughs> or like so you, you do hate poor people, right? Or like, no, 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 no. Or like me, you. because it takes a lot to get drunk, but all like me that you don't actually control your asthma, so you turn up an accident emergency, and I was giving this advice to the doctor, and he just looked at me and said, are you, are you mental? It's like, no, I'm just saying, like, you know, like the, the NHS should be more about preventing these things rather than cure, like you know, me actually turning up. And then I got a call the next day from the hospital asking me how likely I would be to recommend the Royal Free for a family member in the same situation. I was like, I don't want them to have an asthma attack. So what kind of? <laughs> <laughs> so they want to do customer engagement. So the NHS now does customer engagement callbacks. Ah. Uh. Now, now you talk about uh, <coughs> that you voted for Conservatives in the mayor election, and I'm genuinely. Interested to hear your point of view because we we talk a lot about how Boris Johnson is seen as a problematic figure. You know, he makes jokes about you know women, Muslim women looking like letterboxes. What is your opinion of him? And do you think that he should be allowed to make those jokes? Do you think he should apologise? Yeah, I'd rather not talk about that. But ultimately, I think he's the prime minister. And I think the prime minister deserves respect, and I do. And I and I, and I think he for me, I've worked with him personally, and I and and and, and I know his personal commitments to um to uh, to the country and to issues that I really want to um kind of um, kind of talk about but ultimately it's the same thing with it's the same thing with Jeremy Corbyn I don't like him but I still respect him as a, as as a leader of the opposition I think we've got to this point where we've demonized people so much for even having an opinion or saying anything that it's I, I, so there was an interesting um um take uh, they asked a the guy who was is it Abdul from Bristol 
they asked Abdul from Bristol uh, to ask the leaders a question when there was um, when there was the like the stuff about the um, conservative party leadership. I'm like, Abdul from Bristol is more problematic to women like me than the the woke people that want to have issues around Boris Johnson and all these things. I'm I, nobody nobody read nobody that was throwing up arms and having these conversations actually read the full article about his his fundamental principles of saying that women should be able to choose to wear what they want to wear. Um, but then they'll defend someone like Abdul who will probably call me a whore and want me to be um, like you know like you know hung up by my neck for not wearing a headscarf. So I want to say to the left like you know who do you actually stand in solidarity with because like Muslim feminists have been complaining about the burqa for a long time mm. but I just, I just I literally I don't talk, but I just don't get this whole defense of the burqa it's like it's a it's it's it, it, it's it's problematic there is no choice in it and people that wear the burqa have chosen a political ideology it's, it's a political um it's a political thing. So they've t- taken a, a political um, standpoint against the fundamental democracies in, in, in this country. They won't live in a country where the burqa is enforced and where the, and everything to do with the burqa is respected because they know as women in those countries that they'll have no rights. Mm. So mm. it's just like, so for someone like me, the burqa is problematic. For someone like me, white woke people protecting the burqa when they're not going to be subjected to it, it's problematic. It's fucking ironic when a white feminist lesbian protect, wants to protect the burqa. <laughs> Uh, in the interest of not getting no 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 no, no. but in the interest of not getting sued uh, under libel laws all three of us should acknowledge that we have no evidence that Abdul from (laughs) Bristol would would call you a whore or would want you hung up by the neck people okay people like Abdul no I wouldn't let's say cage let's say cage I would not wish to speculate about Abdul's intentions let's have a conversation about cage so cage for example who are this kind of um extremist um, male organization. I don't want to call them a Muslim organization because a lot of the things that they protect are very masculine, maso- mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Majo- um, things about masculinity and misogyny. They would want to defend the burqa, but people are like, you know, going, yeah, as Cage have said, as Cage have said, I'm like, for God's sake, like, the name is Cage because that's what they want to do. They want to cage women. Mm-hmm. So it's like, so th- there is, it's more problematic. Like when I was talking about, FG- when I was talking about FGM, um, white men within the Conservative Party understood and respected and were like, this is horrible, what we're we doing. Men from my own community and from these other kind of very, um, I get a very SM, um, kind of tight, like in you know, a very traditional communities or very patriotical communities all wanted to have me killed and several did try to kill me. Mm. So I think like if the biggest issue that you've got is somebody saying something about a letterbox, then you're not, then you're not actually really talking to Muslim women who are dealing with the consequences of um, of of the narrow interpretation of Islam, and one of the things about and one of the things about the growth in Islamophobia and these kind of uh, these kind of things are it's so so what's happened? There's like massive tensions within poor white working class communities where a lot of um, these extremist views are being held, and then you've got these ginger jihadists, as I like to call them, who like you know white men who all of a sudden like you know convert to Islam, think they know better than me, and start going down to the local corner shop and asking for pork to be banned. Of course, people 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 are going to start having issues with. I you know people saying pork should be banned, alcohol should be banned, and all these other kind of things. But that is not what tolerant Islam or, or conversations have been about. So I think we need to look at where the conversations around the so-called definitions of Islamophobia come from, because I think silencing women like me who say we don't like the burqa, 
polygamy is wrong, like, you know, um, all, all, all these things which should be protected as, like, you know, identities of being Muslim are things that we've been fighting about in all these countries that we all come from. So, yeah, I think it's I think there's a massive issue around who we're targeting around the, the growth of Islamophobia. And I think a lot of that has to sit with a lot of the men who've become the kind of the gatekeepers mm. of these communities. Well, uh, it's a very good point. The reason I made the thing about uh, libel is because a few weeks ago we were talking about Amazon on yeah. the show. And Francis insinuated that they may not pay as much tax as they should. Okay. Uh, and some of our viewers e who are lawyers emailed in going, you may want to look up libel laws, guys. So <laughs> I did look up libel laws. And basically, if you say anything on our show... Uh, that turns out to be inaccurate. Well, just take all that bit out there. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I was only joking. Yeah, no, 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 but, yeah. no, but I, do think, I, I do think it's just one of those things that nobody is calling up, um, like, you know, leaders of certain um, mm. communities. No, no, but that's a totally different point. You're entitled to make that no, no, point. No, no, entirely. Making, but Abdul from Bristol, we just want to say to you, mate, we have no idea <laughs> yeah. what you get up to in your own time. Well, we don't know what I you think. I did write a whole article about it in, in, the, time, in the time. Okay, so if you want to sue someone, sue Nimco. <laughs> don't sue and, me. Don't and, sue and, me. And on that happy note, uh, Nimco, we've run out of time, unfortunately. It's been cool. a great interview. It's Thank you so brilliant. much yeah. for coming. Oh, shit. We have got one final question for you, which is... Uh, what is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we really should be talking about? Um, what are we not talking about in society that we should be talking about? Obviously, I'm going to say vaginas. We're not talking about enough about vaginas. Okay. And, there's, and there's a consultation at the moment out on surrogacy. I think we should actually be talking more about, like, you know, the, the toxicness of surrogacy within our society right now. And I think this idea of the, of, of, of the fact of like, you know, having your own designer babies and kind of assuming that everybody has the right to have a child. A bit random, but it's not random. I just, I really, no. you know, there's, there was a show that I watched a few years ago, which um, had these like, you know, um, like this family that was buying eggs from like white hot women and then going to India and just pumping their eggs and their sperm like these these fetuses into um, these poor these, uh, these poor Indian women and there are enough kids out there for us to adopt but this idea of the fact that we're all doing like surrogacy as though because it's all oh, this is a new way that that technology has allowed us to have a family it's really problematic and I think and then again you can't say that because it's about certain communities feeling like they're being they're, um, they're being targeted but I just think like you know surrogacy is a massive issue and I think it's a I think it's a very um, under um, like in you know, a research and talked about form of violence against women all right. Well, thanks Nothing. for bringing it up. Uh, as always, follow our guest Nimco on Twitter. We'll put a, put a link out to that. Uh, follow us and we will see you in a week from now with another brilliant episode. Take care. See you next week, guys. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.